Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces who challenge the unconventional in the quest for creativity, humanity, innovation, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey where we celebrate experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms, from the inside of the mind to the far reaches of the universe. This is Neurons to Nirvana. In the last two episodes, we explored healing ceremonies and the impact of plant-based medicines, specifically ayahuasca and the San Pedro cactus. My guest today is Dr. Marcus Rogan. Dr. Rogan is president and chief scientific officer of Delic Labs. Delic Labs is licensed in cannabis and psilocybin research with a focus on chemical process development, analytical testing, and extraction optimization. Delic Labs is dedicated to bringing a rigorous scientific foundation to the cannabis and psilocybin industries through their innovative research initiatives and consulting services, as well as offering a wide range of scientific services and expertise involving all aspects of chemistry. Dr. Rogan describes the challenges and nuances for controlled substances in a pharma setting from acquiring, extracting, studying, and the potential for licensing and creating patents for various psychedelic compounds. Delic Labs was initially founded as Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures by Dr. Rogan and his partner, Professor Dr. Glenn Samus, in 2018 and rebranded after the sale to Delic Corp. Dr. Rogan received his Master's of Science degree from Imperial College in London, England in 2008. He then pursued his graduate degree in organic chemistry at the Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, where he received a PhD in 2012. Dr. Rogan was awarded a DAD postdoctoral fellowship to pursue further training in physical organic chemistry at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California from 2013 to 2014. He then entered the cannabis industry in 2014 and has held executive positions in analytical and production companies. There is a tremendous amount of scientific insight in the advancements of psychedelic research in this episode. I encourage you to review the show notes with various links from Delic Labs including a link to the Ketamine Wellness Centers recently acquired by Delic Corp. Dr. Rogan mentions the ketamine infusion clinics in our discussion as well as his interesting comparison of psilocybin and ketamine. Delic is a leading psychedelic wellness platform committed to bringing science-backed benefits to all and reframing the psychedelic conversation. I'm interested in your thoughts and comments on the role of research in pharma and psychedelics. Please feel free to visit my website, neuronstunirvana.com, and drop a comment or send me an email on what you think about this episode. For now, let's jump right into my recent conversation with Dr. Rogan. I assume you know a bit more about me than I know about you right now. We are the the research arm of Delic. We're a research lab licensed uh, to do work on psilocybin and cannabis. I hope I don't disappoint you. Uh, we are chemists, <laughs> so we we might not be doing the fancy research that everyone expects. So we're not going right. to heal anyone. No, no, I know. I'm not asking for you to give me the data on the healing process. If you could give me more background, tell me about Delic Labs, and then also what drew you to this type of research. Sure, happy to. So, Dr. Rogan, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me about uh, your research. You are, if you wouldn't mind for the listeners, studying, giving some background, as uh, I know that you're currently doing research at the University 
of British Columbia. But uh, if you wouldn't mind telling me a little more about yourself. Sure. So thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. Uh, I'm Dr. Marcus Rogan. I'm a chemist by training. Uh, and I have been working in the cannabis industry in North America for a few years, uh, which eventually brought me up to uh, Vancouver, Canada, where we are located now. Um, we have a private research lab on the grounds of UBC, so the University of British Columbia. So I don't currently hold an, a faculty position at the university. I used to. Oh, okay. uh, and my co-founder of the company, he's a full professor in the chemistry department. So we have very close links to the university, but this is still a private uh, research lab as it makes life a lot easier with licensing, and I'm sure we will get into that part. What we are doing and what interests me is we are chemists that like to do research on controlled substances, so cannabis and psychedelics, that uh, currently lack a lot of the fundamental research uh, it would need to prosper to its full potential. And how long have you been in researching uh, cannabis specifically? I finished my postdoc in 2014. So that's when I entered the cannabis industry in California initially. And I moved to British Columbia late 2018 uh, and then set up laboratory here in Vancouver. Um, we had to move away from the US to, to Canada uh, because the the federal illegality in the US makes research quite difficult uh, in the US for, for cannabis and, and now uh, psychedelics too. While in Canada, there is a federal framework to get research licenses for both uh, cannabis and psychedelic compounds. And so we received those licenses uh, that then allow us to work with the plants and mushrooms uh, in our laboratory. And then uh, as we are close to or on the grounds of UBC, uh, utilize a lot of their instrumentation and services uh, that you normally wouldn't have access to as a private research lab. When did you all start your trials with the analytics concerning specifically psilocybin? We learned... In early 2020, so now over a year ago, that uh, Health Canada had established uh, a licensing system that could be used for research on psychedelic compounds. So the, the licensing system was in place for a long time. A bit of background. In Canada, you can apply for a licensed dealer that would allow you to work, produce and work with certain restricted substances. And it was around early 2020 that a few companies tried this route to be able to produce psychedelic mushrooms for the burgeoning med medical trials and treatment in Canada. And also, and that's where, where the strategy we used initially, uh, because so a licensed dealer or dealer's license uh, is a very, very long process. It takes um, up to two years and, and we are in that process. It just takes ages. Um, 
a, a quicker route to um, the ability to work with psilocybin was to apply for a 56 exemption. These exemptions were created by Health Canada to allow very specific cases, very specific use of controlled substances. So 56 exemptions were initially created so that a few specific patients could use psilocybin. That's what what 56 uh, uh, exemptions were used initially, where that a few pa- uh, patients had access to psilocybin for treatment of their um, very serious conditions. And so there may, there may be a handful, like five, six uh, in Canada. Right. Um, but uh, research groups um, utilize these 56 exemptions to then add some research to it. So 56 exemption for a research group to maybe test, test mice uh, on psilocybin or um, for, uh, let's say, uh, anti-cancer work with cannabis, right? Um, if you're a research group in a, in a university or in a laboratory setting, you might apply for these 56 to do very specific uh, small research projects. And, and that's what we went after because we had all that experience and, and laboratory setup from our cannabis licensing. Uh, we went for this 56 uh, exemption to do analytical method development for psychedelic compounds. And we received that license uh, in late 2020 uh, and since then have been working away on on building analytical methods uh, for psilocybin, psilocybin mushrooms and and related compounds. And it has been a fun ride so far and uh, we are ever expanding our abilities to work with controlled substances. And where are you getting these mushrooms from exactly? So that's where then the dealer's license comes back in. You have to consider that any government entity that gives out licensing for controlled substances has as one of the most important interests in this controlling the substances. So we can only receive psilocybin, other psychedelic compounds or psilocybin mushrooms from other licensed entities in the Health Canada system. And that's where licensed dealers come in. Because as a licensed dealer, you are able to grow uh, psychedelic mushrooms and you're able to sell them. But you can only sell them to other licensed dealers or research laboratories or doctors that hold a 56 exemption for psilocybin. Uh, And so that's how we we do it. We would... um, specify on our 56 exemption that we want to buy mushrooms from a certain licensed dealer to receive uh, a certain amount of mushroom. It's an arduous and paperwork intensive process, um, but that's how we get our mushrooms. I'm fully aware that I could just go into the forest next to the university and pick some mushrooms and there's probably some psilocybin in there and I would have the material that I need for my research uh, but that forest doesn't have a dealer's license from Health Canada so I can't receive that material. Of course. So tell me exactly, as far as the extraction is going, what is the data that you're currently finding out? Yes. So we are we are chemists. So um, if the audience was hoping on learning anything about treatment of uh, certain diseases or illnesses um, or mental states, uh, we can't really help. What we can help with is how do we make sure what a person takes 
is exactly what they expect or what it should be. And so our focus is therefore on analytical method development right now in the psychedelic space um, because uh, a review of the literature early on showed us that there is no agreement on how to sample prepare a mushroom and then analyze it to identify and quantify the concentrations of psilocybin in those mushrooms. We started working on psilocybin mushrooms late last year and we're still working on it and haven't fully figured it out yet. Because um, while the literature, academic literature was uh, disagreeing on it, um, most of them were also plain wrong. The, the problem is... Um, you need to, in a sample preparation for mushrooms, uh, you need to ensure that you extract all the psilocybin that's in the in the fruiting body and that ends up in your liquid, which you then later inject into your testing instrument uh, for quantification. And uh, therefore, is the question, do you, do you, do you extract it for a minute? Do you extract it for 24 hours? And uh, anything in that time frame is given as a, as a potential method uh, in the literature. And then comes the problem, you need to run a lot of experiments to figure that out. The psychedelic mushrooms are very expensive and you can't have much of it. Uh, so to do this work on trying to figure out how to extract psilocybin from the mushroom, we're actually using um, test subjects or um, um, example systems. Uh, very closely related to the psychedelic mushrooms are the functional mushrooms. Um, they are related in in their potential use and benefits, but they're also related in the business case. We see a lot of translation between companies that do psilocybin mushrooms and also look into functional mushrooms. So we have been doing a lot of extraction work on psychedelic uh, on, on functional mushrooms, and we are translating that work. And, and what we find is um, finding the right solvent system is quite important because you often don't – you not only want to know psilocybin, but you also want to know other compounds that are in the mushroom uh, that you want to identify uh, and quantify. So psilocybin is extremely water-soluble. So you could just do it in water um, and that's where the mushroom teas come from. Uh, but uh, other compounds – like terpenes would not dissolve in mush uh, in in water for those who need an organic solvent. So methanol might work, uh, or or hexane. Uh, and now you think, why did I say terpenes? Did I do too much of our cannabis research? Um, it actually crosses over because freshly prepared, freshly harvested mushrooms still have a lot of terpenes in them, uh, and it's quite surprising. It's these dried mushrooms that have been stored for a long, long time that have no terpenes left. But a fresh mushroom still has some flavor, uh, some smell to it, and and terpenes present. So you want to quantify those too. Could you lead into? I read psilocene. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, uh, I, I'm not sure how you really pronounce it. Uh, there are even different <laughs> spelling methods. You can do it with an I or a Y at the end. Um, Silosin, Silosin. Um, Silosin. I, I, I think everything is fine. Uh, you, are, you are based in Texas. I'm in Canada, so we can definitely <laughs> pronounce it in two different ways. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, psilocybin is the compounds that the mushroom produce, but psilocin... Or psilocin, 
I go with Solosan. Solosan uh, okay. is the is the actually the active ingredient. Uh, that is the the compound that will lead to the psychedelic effect in 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 your body, and uh, your body converts psilocybin into solosin. Uh and it does that uh, in the ingestive tract. So that's why you ingest it, you drink it, you eat it, uh, your stomach acids will do the work and, and break it down uh, into psilocin. Um, and then psilocin gets to your brain and does all the fun stuff. So one could wonder, why don't we just make psilocin and, and ingest that? Be quick, quicker with it. Problem is psilocin is very, very unstable to oxidation. You see that uh, when you harvest uh, a psychedelic mushroom, they they turn blue. Uh, where you cut them or when you scratch the stem, they turn blue. And that blue color is actually the oxidation product of psilocin. Because uh, naturally, always a little bit of psilocybin, even in the mushroom, will break down to psilocin. And then this psilocin will oxidize more or less instantaneously to a compound that has a blue color. So you have to package in a mushroom or in any any form, uh, any other form you might want to treat a, a patient with uh, psychedelics. You have to package it in the uh, psilocybin form and cannot really package it as psilocin. Okay. Now, currently, you're the chief scientific officer for Delic Labs. And how long have you been with Delic? So um, I mentioned I came to uh, Vancouver in late 2018, uh, where we then built up this laboratory. And uh, we started under a different name, Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures. Uh, and we were acquired by uh, Delic Labs in May 2020. 21, so um, about half a year ago. Uh, that's when when our our laboratory, Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures, was renamed and absorbed by by Delic Corp, uh, and we are now a fully owned subsidiary uh, by by them, uh, and uh, basically their research arm. Okay, and how many other competitors do you have in in this uh, realm of research? So maybe we have to take a step back and define what we are. So we are a research arm for, for Delic Corp, but what kind of research do we do? We at Delic Labs do research both in cannabis and psilocybin or psychedelics, and we do that mostly as a CRO, a contract research organization. So we work with or for companies in the space, uh, large Canadian or U.S. cannabis producers, small cannabis producers, international tobacco companies, licensed dealers, so mushroom companies uh, in Canada, and there's also some interest in the US now coming our way, um, that need help or support uh, with their spe- with specific problems they have. That might be um, in psychedelics that uh, a mushroom producer wants uh, a testing method for their mushrooms to quantify psilocybin uh, and they want this on site. They want this at their production facility. So we develop uh, a testing method that is robust and and easy to use uh, that can be implemented at the production site. 
or we uh, we might have a mushroom grower that uh, wants to learn more about the mushroom, not only how much psilocybin is in there, but what other compounds of interest in there and uh, what's the genetic uh, background of their mushrooms. So uh, they would work with us, send us their samples, uh, and we then do a full analysis. We have developed uh, machine learning algorithms, or, or you can also call that uh, artificial intelligence, uh, to to optimize their machines, not only for a general approach, but on a run-per-run basis on each cultivar they might be using. One day they extract want to extract sour diesel, uh, they get one set of parameters. The next day they do... Um, uh, some cookie strain that they have uh, and they want to make a different oil, maybe for vaping, they get another set of conditions um, and our AI does that for them more or less automatically. Back to your question, who are our competitors? So we are a contract research organization in the chemicals space focused on controlled substances. So I now have put in so many qualifiers that it tr- very narrows down our competition because there are CROs on the in the uh, pharma world, but they don't do controlled substances or cannabis and psychedelics. Then there are testing laboratories in cannabis, uh, but they only do compliant testing. They don't do fundamental research like identifying new compounds, right? That's us. So cannabis testing labs are also not our uh, competition. And then other licensed mushroom growers in, in Canada are also not really our competition because they are focused on production. They want to make the mushroom and sell the mushroom. We don't do any production. We don't do any selling, right? We, we only create knowledge and, and develop new processes. We don't actually sell a mushroom or a cannabis product. There might be some academic research groups uh, that do work in, in our field, but they're often way more focused on a single aspect because of, often because of their licensing, right? They have applied for research allowance, like a 56, on a very specific project and then can only do this. There might be uh, some competition, but to, we, we don't, there isn't really a, uh, a glowing competitor to ours. I think one that would come to mind would be Numinos. Numinos uh, started off as a cannabis testing lab. They developed some of their own processes for cannabis production. Uh, and they also have a dealer's license for psychedelic mushrooms. So they can now do analytics and, and research in the psychedelic mushroom field. But they also grow mushrooms and sell those mushrooms. To a large extent, they are a producer. The research for psilocybin seems as though it's currently in its infancy stage, but how does that compare to cannabis? Cannabis is is years ahead. That is right. So psilocybin on psychedelic uh, research is really in the infancy. There is no real industry to speak of. Yes, there are some companies that have a dealer's license, but I also mentioned that there are only a handful of patients. Cannabis is further uh, along, right? They have large companies, billion dollars worth on the stock market, um, also billion dollars in losses. So they they are a few cycles ahead uh, in their development. Uh, and obviously, the, the US uh, cannabis industry has decades of experience and, uh, and history. 
Uh, but that's not to say that cannabis is uh, a fully grown-up uh, industry itself. A lot of developmental potential and growth potential in cannabis. So yes, psilocybin is, is an infant if we want to take uh, some examples here. But cannabis is not even a teenager yet. Where do you think psilocybin and other psychedelics can go based off the analytics that you have seen thus far? So uh, we just had the question, how does it compare to cannabis in its, in its development? But I would caution to take cannabis as a general example of where psilocybin will go because cannabis has effectively become generalized a recreational there are still some medical states and there are some medical applications and europe is mostly medical but everywhere it's going towards recreational as an alternative to alcohol tobacco and as a general use aspect psilocybin i don't really see going in a uh, recreational direction. Even the industry insiders and most of the conversations that I, I see about the uh, medical treatment of neurological diseases or neurological problems, like mental health, and therefore I don't see mushrooms really breaking into the mainstream as a, a recreational material. I, I think it will more skew towards the pharma direction. And that's why we see a lot of trials being done with pure synthetic psilocybin and not the mushroom, uh, because the mushroom is, is very difficult to quantify and to control and to, to make reproducible the same thing, the same dose every time you take it. Maybe the mushroom is just our guiding light to then pick the compound and then go as a pharmaceutical direction with it. That's where I think it will go. If you think that it will go in the pharmaceutical direction, do you think that it will harm the actual benefits of psilocybin in any way? Is is more philosophical question about uh, <laughs> right. various industries. Just because something is big doesn't make it bad. And because something is small doesn't mean it's good. If we take examples, uh, the cannabis industry has a lot of crooks and get-rich-fast people. And, and the pharma industry, I think, as last year showed, if they are needed, right, they can, they can throw their might behind a problem and get a solution done very, very quickly. Yes, we are talking remotely because we still have to social distance, but we are on the way up from from a virus that swept across uh, the globe, and uh, pharma was able, obviously, with the support of uh, of government systems and uh, and academia, uh, to come up with a solution that can bring us back to uh, normal or the new normal. That's where actually uh, I want to go a little bit specific in our research uh, that brings up uh, a point why something like the pharma industry might be a good place uh, for psychedelic compounds. Psilocybin is the compound of interest. And we already said that psilocybin will convert to psilocin in the body and that psilocin, when outside the body, and, and as a pure form, would very quickly oxidize to, to other compounds that, that have color and so on and so forth. Even, even psychedelic mushrooms uh, do see these oxidation steps uh, in their mushroom. We have actually, from a, from a 
uh, a company we work with, received pure psilocybin, right? Pure psilocybin. When we do the concentrations of it, it is psilocybin. There's psilocybin in there. When we do the identification, we look on an NMR. We, we look on, on high-res uh, mass spectroscopy, uh, spectrometry, um, psilocybin. But when we look in the UV, we can see a color. UV-vis instruments basically record color. And psilocybin is white, but we can see a little bit of pink. If stored incorrectly, psilocybin will break down in a new compound that we don't yet know what it is. Uh, well, we have we have quite good idea what what some of those uh, compounds are that produce the pink color. Um, but psilocin, when you scratch a mushroom, that's blue. That's not pink. So. We're talking about something else. Uh, and even right. the blue color was only identified like two years ago. So pharma is really, really good in in defining what is in their material and what happens to their material up on storage, up on ingestion, up on being in your cabinet, being uh, on a truck, being driven across the country. How many people are microdosing on mushrooms that they think are psychedelic, but because it's microdosing, they never get into the, the full effect anyway. And so they might actually just eat mushrooms, functional mushrooms, or, or even gourmet mushrooms. There's no psilocybin in there. But because they they like microdose, they wouldn't know. And seriously, if I want to treat a condition, an illness, um, something that needs treatment, I don't want to rely on maybe. Like no one of us has ever gone to their medical cabinet, to their uh, bathroom shelf and picked up uh, uh, paracetamol or uh, aspirin and thought maybe that will help. Or maybe there's enough uh, uh, paracetamol in there to 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 uh, help me with my headache. We know if we take that that pill or that tablet, there is that amount in there that we expect. Um, and and we all know from the cannabis world and and also from the from the mushroom world, you're not really sure how much uh, is in there. So I like uh, an established industry that is under strict rules and regulations and has developed centuries of, um, at least a century of experience of handle materials and compounds that have important effects on the body. Have you done extensive research with any other types of psychedelics? We are slowly expanding our palette of, of compounds that we, uh, that we work with or that we have analytical methods for. So there's Psilocybin, psilocin, right? Uh, there are other psych uh, there are other tryptamine derivatives in the mushroom, beostein, norbeostein, argenostein, and now we are like, don't even ask me about the pronunciation. So there are a few other <laughs> tryptamine compounds that are very related in their structural appearance to psilocybin and psilocin. Then obviously you have to work with the base tryptamines. Uh, you, you, need, you need to know those compounds. Uh, uh, DMTs, for example, right? you, you should know how they look in your analytic uh, instrument. Um, then ibogaine uh, is a compound uh, that we have analytical methods for. And then going going along all the uh, psychedelics, uh, so LSD, um, uh, there are the the various DMT versions, so um, five 
MEO, DOT, uh, DMT. So they send you one milligram of the compound and one milliliter of solvent, and then you can use that to build your methods. And those you don't need licensing for. But as soon as you need larger quantities or you need pure compounds, uh, then you need the licensing. And so um, our 56 uh, applications are constantly being uh, expanded on which compounds we can have. But we also need a dealer or a licensed dealer that produces those compounds that we can have them. It's this balance game of can we have it? Can someone give them to us? Do we want to work with it? Uh, in general, if you can think of a psychedelic compound, we have it on our list to be developed. It might just be at various stages. For all of the ones that you just mentioned? Yes. Uh, and a few that I didn't, that I forgot if I, uh, the list is long. So LSD, Ibogaine, yep. DMT. Yeah. All different variants, variables. Uh, yeah, then ma compounds. Uh, ma mass, mass. Sorry, I, I pronunciations. Uh, mass, massine, mass, the the compound in the uh, in masculine. The, masculine, that's the one. Masculine, masculine yes, yes, that's masculine. also on the list. And then uh, MDMA. MDMA, yes. So now I just need to uh, quickly go to the list. So maybe you can name a few more and I try to find my list. Are you doing any testing with ayahuasca? As you know, DMT is a chemical compound in ayahuasca. Yes. So that's more the question, is there someone in Canada that grows it? And that's currently a hard no. So we can't. We can look at the compound, but we can't look at the at the at the plant yet, as no one is making it yet. Well, wait, ayahuasca is not really a plant; it's a mixture. But no one makes this ayahuasca for us yet to to look at. Based off of your research, which specific psychedelics are you the most hopeful will at least get to the same stage currently as cannabis, or maybe even further along? Which of those compounds do we think will go forward? At the current state stage, psilocybin mushrooms seem to be the prime conversation starter. Considering that uh, the the peyote mushroom, uh, peyote cactus, cactus takes so long to grow, it doesn't seem feasible that that these cacti become a source of of healing uh, at a larger scale. Um, I understand that the, the cacti are actually active threatened uh, by the interest in them because the demand outstrips uh, the natural uh, occurrence of those. Mushrooms don't have that issue. And and we definitely don't want to go after the, the poor frogs uh, that produce a, a psychoactive compound. So the mushrooms have there the highest potential. But we also said that the mushroom that it is likely to go towards some form of defined controllable dose, which would then us lead us more towards a pure compound. So which compounds do we think? This week, uh, Compass came out with their stage two trials on psilocybin for treatment-resistant depressions, and they looked really good. MAPS had their clinical trial results out for MDMA and was that also for depression or uh, that was for PTSD? Yeah. MDMA and PTSD. PTSD, that's right. Yeah. So psilocybin, MDMA, they are currently the front runners because there's some clinical trial data behind it. But then you also have to consider if someone puts the effort in, they want to be able to pay back all the efforts uh, they put in. You have to also consider the pathogen, pathogen, 
patenting strategy behind them. And natural compounds you can't patent. Compass patented the crystal structure uh, or the, the specific composition of their psilocybin material. And that was how they were able to patent their psilocybin treatment. Is that uh, a general way going forward? Not sure. We can also quickly pull in ketamine. Um, we haven't actually mentioned that yet. Um, not really a psychedelic compound in the in the realms we have currently talked about because we talked about naturally occurring in plants or mushrooms or frogs. Uh, ketamine is, a, is an anesthetic drug that was found to have psychedelic effects and also um, potential for a metal, uh, mental health treatment. So you have ketamine clinics and uh, Delic Labs owns quite a few of those ketamine clinics uh, in the US. And we see great results there. Um, but ketamine generally as, as uh, used is uh, a mixture of two enantiomers. So um, enantiomers are uh, mirror images, non-superimposable. So like your left hand and your right hand, right? They mirror each other, but right. you're not superimposable. Uh, and they to to most physical uh, constants or physical aspects they look exactly the same right they look the same on a test instrument they look the same in in the detector uh they have the same weight they have the same melting point and everything but in a biological system that is all about chirality they will have they potentially can have different effects the right and the left now one company patented the one enantiomer of ketamine, the S enantiomer, uh, as a nasal spray, and it's called S ketamine, as one word, E S ketamine, which is really weird. But S is a it's a the the letter S it donates the crystal uh, the the optical rotation of it, and the R enantiomer of ketamine is also currently going through clinical trials and might also become its own drug. If you can patent it and you can make a claim that it is helpful or superior, you can go forward. Let's use that to quickly jump back to, to psilocybin because we have a big problem with psilocybin. And ketamine is here the good example. Ketamine clinics, people go there for an hour, two-hour session, and then they leave. Anyone who took uh, a psychedelic dose of uh, psilocybin would know that's not a two-hour event. That's a longer process. And I think even in the COMPASS phase two trials, there was a pretreatment, then there was the psilocybin uh, application, and it was, um, I think, a six-hour process, right? For six hours, you are in the psychedelic state, and then you leave, and there's, there's then also a, a, a post-treatment. Psilocybin doesn't really lend itself to a, a cookie-cutter treatment because it takes too long. Can you therefore can you deliver the psychedelic effects and the the mental health effect in a shorter package, so that they are only tripping for thirty minutes, an hour, and hopefully as get opposed to right several hours because typically yeah. it's six to eight hours. Yeah, so you you don't really want that your people are tripping that long. If you can can reduce the trip, or can you even reduce? Can you even negate the trip as in total? Can you deliver the mental health without them having this acute psychedelic experience? Low dose or, or correctly dosed ketamine will not make you trip. Can you deliver that with psilocybin or 
an alternative. So I think what will win out is not one of the compounds we're currently working with, but a new compound inspired by the compounds we're working with. If you develop a new compound, you can patent it. And if you develop a new compound, you can dial it in that it delivers the aspects you want, maybe shorter acute in, uh, intoxication or hallucination, um, but uh, a long, still long-lasting mental health benefit. I think that that would appeal to the broader public if it didn't last for six to eight hours, as opposed to ketamine, which you just said only lasts for one to two hours. Yeah, and uh, what is is this meme, don't have time for this? Uh, so that, <laughs> right. that would be would be an aspect, uh, and I'm not saying that everyone uh, desires a shorter trip. Right? Uh, it's, there's definitely current, definitely, and a demand for for these long trips, um, but I don't think they are purely mental health and treatment inspired. Then comes the question: How do you? How you develop new compounds. And that is a, is a multi-stage process. You have to come up with a compound. You have to make the compound. So coming up with a compound and synthesizing the compound, that's in the chemistry space. And then you have to test it in, in models. Uh, that might be in cell cultures or in receptor assays in a Petri dish. Eventually, you have to go to uh, an animal model. And, and then you have to go into human trials. And, and then you obviously need the treatment. So there are multiple stages and uh, there are multiple um, specialities and skill levels uh, that work. And I said, right, the beginning is chemistry, then there's biology, and then there's medicine. So we are chemists. Where are we in developing new compounds? We definitely have the interest in it. Uh, we do have the skills and uh, we have been thinking about it. Yes, uh, we, we have some ideas um, that we are pursuing uh, of uh, developing uh, new compounds that focus on certain needs in the psychedelic space. That is extremely fascinating and uh, completely out of my realm of knowledge, but I can't thank you enough for filling us in. And I'm excited to see if you're able to come up with a patent for some of these chemical compounds that we've been talking about. Yeah, so patent is obviously um, one of the goals um, that has that has a business uh, aspect to it. There's um, the, the potential of a financial upside. For me, as a, as a chemist and a researcher, um, just the process of getting there is is what what drives me uh, every day. If we get really down in our chemistry and uh, think about spatial orientations of molecules, how can we how can we change the backbone structure so that we get a certain fit into a, a receptor pocket? Can we use methyl groups or fluorines to restrict rotation? Um, do we exploit chirality? Uh, obviously. Psilocybin, no chirality there. Ketamine, there is chirality, but psilocybin is flat. There is no chirality to have. Uh, but can we maybe build some chirality into it? Uh, it could be done. So th- there is, there's a lot of stuff we can do um, and we want to do, and that that's what really drives me every day. Patterns are nice, I guess, from a business sense. As an academic, I think patterns are the most boring things I've ever read in my life. <laughs> right. Uh, well, while I say that, actually, the, tomorrow my whole day is focused on writing patterns or preparing patent writing. So I'm dreading that already. 
on which which chemical compound or can you share that at all there are chemical compounds uh, but they're also applications right we, we're working both in the cannabis and the psychedelic space so um, we have to think about both use uh, cases and uh, what can be or should could be patented um and maybe I'm not really playing the game yet that I'm patenting everything like pillows and uh, soothing music. Uh, but uh, I, we have to write some patents when we come up with some really cool ideas uh, and that we want to share with the industry. The having a patent also protects the method. So I don't want that people run off with the method and then do it wrong and maybe harm uh, right. their clients. So um, that's actually uh, more my focus in writing a patent than than uh, uh, than uh, all the the evil things that people are to, uh, that companies are accused of with their patents. Well, I look forward to following what uh, what you come up with, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, uh, we try to share as much as possible, right? Um, I had the opportunity now to talk to you on the, the podcast, uh, but we also present at conferences or uh, write articles. So um, if you follow us on our normal platforms of social media uh, or our website, uh, daleklabs.com, uh, or meet us at any conference, uh, we are always happy to, to share um, some of our exciting research. Excellent. Well, Dr. Rogan, thank you so much for spending the time, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It really was fascinating. Thank you. I'm happy uh, to have talked to you. After speaking with Dr. Rogan, it is apparent that there is a challenge that presents itself both for a chemist as well as any individual seeking the proper dose of psilocybin for personal consumption. A lot of momentum has been circulating around microdosing in recent years, and the media has reported the research of the benefits in the treatment of depression for magic mushrooms. However, it is not that easy to extract, measure, store, or administer psilocybin. In fact, many celebrities have gone on record citing psilocybin as a catalyst for creativity, reducing anxiety, and enhancing one's overall general well-being. Casey Musgrave stated in an article featured in Rolling Stone magazine earlier this year that her recently released album, Starcross, is partially inspired by a psychedelic trip on magic mushrooms while being monitored and under the care of a doctor during the entire experience, which lasted nearly eight hours. In the next episode, I interview Shane Moss, who fully embraces the term psychonaut after releasing his documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. Shane joins me to discuss the integration of his use of psychedelics in his career and shares his personal opinion on the merits of microdosing. It is a very different perspective from my science-based discussion with Dr. Rogan, and I'm excited to share with you Shane's view on the topic. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. And until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. <laughs>